0: The judge emphasized to Mr. Trump that the conditions of his release ahead of the trial include not committing a crime.
1: <laughs> well,
0: good luck with that. <laughs> well, I don't know why I came here tonight.
1: That's why.
0: I got the feeling something right. Go it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs.
1: To the, left
2: me, joke us to the right Here I am, stuck in
1: the middle with you Yep From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso, Eugene's KEPW Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, in Rochester, New York on WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF, amongst other fine terrestrial affiliates across this great land. Also, we stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internet's on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn No Lies Radio Verdant Square Radio Detour Talk and most of your favorite podcast sites Blanketing Planet Earth I'm Brad Friedman your friendly investigative blogger journalist troublemaker muckraker and all around swell fellow says me from Bradblog.com thank you very much for joining us for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast boy I'll tell you when it uh, rains it pours it often does I (laughs) guess Uh, the uh, we, we, You know what? Let's just get, get right to that uh, clip. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this today, but this is uh, Andrew Weisman, longtime federal prosecutor responding to the latest arraignment of Donald Trump in
0: federal court
1: on Thursday afternoon.
0: Um, usually the standard condition that a judge emphasizes. And I thought when I heard it was going to be, and she reiterated, the most important thing is... I thought it was going to be that you have to show up at each court appearance. That is the most important thing. That is what bail is for, is that you will show up in court. When I heard that the standard condition and the most important thing is do not commit a crime, followed up by do not tamper with a juror, I, I, I was, I, I, my reaction was I, have, I was a prosecutor for 21 years. I was a defense lawyer for five years. I have never... <laughs>
2: For that. Wow. Wow. Wow, indeed. So
0: that happened on
1: Thursday. Uh, we will get to at least a, a little bit of Trump's arraignment in D.C. in a federal courtroom, his third such arraignment for felony crimes in the past four months. Uh, we'll get to that momentarily. Spoiler alert. He pleaded not guilty. <laughs> Whether he has committed any crimes since doing so or tampered with any jurors, I don't know. I wouldn't bet on it, to be frank. Uh, but since that new indictment has taken up pretty much All of the news oxygen over this past week, I want to make sure to try to hit a couple of other items today that you may or may not have heard about uh, or that need more coverage or that I had otherwise hoped to cover all week long, but continuously keep getting waylaid by breaking news on this show over the past week. So uh, we'll get to that, as I say, in a minute. But allow me to start here with the so-called fiscal conservatives in Congress. Now, that would be the Republicans who pretend to be fiscal conservatives in the U.S. House in particular. And uh, as we had warned a few months ago, back when they were threatening to plunge the U.S. government into default for the first time in history, instead of voting on a simple increase to the uh, statutory debt ceiling, as we have done for decades, for the past hundred years or so, to authorize borrowing money to pay the bills for the stuff that Congress and presidents for decades have already agreed to pay for. Those so-called fiscal conservatives who were playing with fire back then uh, just a few months ago and before finally agreeing to a two-year suspension of the debt ceiling in a deal with Joe Biden, they have, in fact, as we had warned, succeeded in. In harming the U.S. economy anyway, merely due to their brinkmanship and apparent willingness to crash both the nation and the world's economy by simply threatening, just, you know, running it right up to the wall, threatening to allow the U.S. to default on its bills for the first time ever. So this happened on Tuesday. It was the uh, the day that the third indictment of Trump this one at the federal level for actions related to attempting to steal the 2020 election, Uh, it was that day that this came in, so a lot of this got missed. But I want to make sure that it doesn't get completely lost. Late Tuesday, Fitch Ratings became the second of the three major credit firms to remove its coveted AAA assessment of the United States government's credit worthiness. Citing rising debt at the federal, state, and local levels, which has been rising for a long time, so that's not the main reason, and, quote, steady deterioration in standards of governance over the past two decades. Aha! There you go. The, quote, erosion of governance compared with other countries with similar debt ratings. The rating was cut on Tuesday from uh, AAA, which is the highest possible rating, to AA+. The decision, as AP describes it, illustrates one way that growing political polarization and repeated Washington standoffs over spending and taxes could end up costing U.S. taxpayers. Hmm, I wonder... I wonder who is causing those repeated standoffs, AP. A lower credit rating over time could raise borrowing costs for the U.S. government. So while complaining that the government is just spending too much money, but they only do that, of course, when there is a Democrat in the White House, the Republican Party, after massively decreasing government revenue, money coming into the federal government to pay our bills, With the massive uh, Trump tax cuts for the wealthy and the corporations decreasing uh, the revenue, the Republicans' economic hostage taking has now, in fact, made it more expensive for the government to borrow money. In other words, Republicans are increasing the debt and deficit while pretending to complain that the debt and deficit are now too high, which is a pretty neat trick. And the best news is it happened while their disgraced former president was being indicted again. So a lot fewer people probably heard about any of this, much less what it means at all. Now, this is only the second time in U.S. history that its credit rating has been cut. The other time, well, that would be back in 2011 during the Obama administration when the ratings agency uh, S&P, Standard & Poor's, stripped the U.S. of its prized AAA rating after... Yes, a prolonged standoff by Republicans over the government's borrowing limit. So they knew it was going to happen again this time because the same exact thing happened last time. They pulled this same crap. The Government Accountability Office back in 2012 had estimated that the 2011 budget standoff ended up raising Treasury's borrowing costs by $1.3 billion that year alone. So it costs more money thanks to what they did, even while they're complaining about we're spending too much money.
2: Because the Republicans' mismanagement and hostage-taking and debt-limit brinksmanship have made it more expensive for all of us to borrow now.
1: Correct. Although the word is... Brinkmanship But I I don't want to pick nits here. Anyway, uh, so following the news of of the uh, downgrade on Tuesday by Fitch, well, the stock market took a dive. Hopefully, for investors, it's a short-lived one, but we'll see. It took a dive on Wednesday, the day after that news. And today, mortgage rates for regular Americans was inched up yet again toward 7% in response to the Fitch downgrade. So... Now, you, if you have a home mortgage, you may be paying more money in interest thanks to what the GOP has been doing to you. Those are the Republican fiscal conservatives. And just one of the reasons that I refuse to do them the favor of describing them as conservatives... As pretty much everyone else in the media seems happy to do for some reason. Fitch had even warned on May 24 that it could remove the government's AAA rating as Congress, uh, as, as congressional Republicans were holding a gun to the economy's head at the time, threatening to plunge the globe into recession or even depression uh, had we not been able to pay our bills. At the time, Fitch cited the standoff, noting the, uh, quote, repeated debt limit standoffs and last minute resolutions that threatened the global economy. And yesterday in a Reuters exclusive, Fitch told the outlet that the uh, January 6, 2021 insurrection was also a reason for their downgrade. Richard Francis, a senior director at Fitch, told Reuters on Wednesday that polarization in the country's political climate visible in the January 6 insurrection was highlighted in meetings with the Treasury Department ahead of Tuesday's downgrade. Quote, it was something that we highlighted because it is a reflection of the deterioration in governance and one of many, he said. So Donald Trump did not just succeed in putting American democracy at risk through his insurrection and his attempt to steal the 2020 election on January 6th of 2021. He also succeeded in putting the American and world economy at risk that day with what he did and arguably has, in fact, harmed at least the U.S. economy and our ability to borrow money today. And yet, Republicans, they're still supporting him bigly as their front runner for the 2024 presidential nomination, at least for now. I am actually still of the belief or maybe I don't know, maybe it's just the hope that, uh, that that will change in the coming months as more and more Americans are shown firsthand how he was and is personally the greatest threat this nation and its constitutional form of Republican democracy has perhaps ever faced, certainly since the Civil War at the very least. So, on that note, the 45th president of the United States pleaded not guilty on Thursday to federal conspiracy charges related to his and his co-conspirators plot to subvert the will of voters and to steal the 2020 presidential election that he lost to Joe Biden. There were very few, if any, protesters outside the federal courthouse in D.C. It was mostly observers and Tourists with, uh, with media actually appearing to outnumber all of them once again. Before entering his plea, defendant Donald J. Trump answered basic questions from the judge. He was informed of the charges and their potential penalties, including up to 20 years in prison for the most serious counts. He appeared before a magistrate judge in D.C.'s federal courthouse two days after being indicted on four felony counts by special counsel Jack Smith, marking the first effort, first effort to try to hold Trump criminally responsible for his efforts to block the peaceful transfer of power for the first time in American history during the insurrection that he incited at the U.S. Capitol. These uh, newest felony charges for the current 2024 Republican presidential frontrunner include conspiracy to defraud the United States and obstruct Congress's certification of Biden's victory. It comes nearly two months after Trump pleaded not guilty to dozens of separate federal felony counts, accusing him of hoarding classified documents, stealing them, in fact and thwarting government efforts to try and retrieve them. And a month before that, he faced 34 charges related to hush money payments to hide sexual affairs that he had had in hopes of winning the 2016 presidential election. Trump, of course, says he is innocent of all of those charges. I think I lost track, but I think we are now officially up to 74 felony counts
2: (laughs) well if he gets three more then he'll have as many counts as his age there you go account for every year
1: i was thinking he would get a free subway sandwich but (laughs) anyway uh he says he's innocent his legal team uh says uh that and at least half a dozen by the way of of his attorney's were co-conspirators identified in that indictment. So presumably this is his legal team that is not identified as co-conspirators, but who knows? They all say that uh, he has uh, uh, falsely characterized the uh, latest case against him falsely as an attack on his right to free speech. That seems to be the defense. As the indictment notes, however, in just the third paragraph, So even Fox News viewers can read three paragraphs, right? Quote, the defendant had a right, like every American, to speak publicly about the election and even to claim falsely that there had been outcome determinative fraud during the election and that he had won. He was also entitled to formally challenge the results of the election through lawful and appropriate means. So this is not about free speech. They note that he was welcome if he wanted to to lie about the results of the election. But then the document goes on to explain and that, you know, paragraph four on through uh, the the 45th page. So now we're asking a lot of his supporters to read. (laughs) True. It explains how Trump's unlawfully attempted to change results. And that is a crime. And he frequently used claims that he knew to be false in order to cause actions that helped him to try to steal the election that he lost. His right to free speech has nothing to do with the charges that are filed against him. No matter how much you will hear him and his attorneys and his supporters knowingly duped or otherwise blatantly lie to you about that point. He is welcome to lie about the election. He is not welcome to uh, take action and use lies in order to try to steal the election. It's that simple. The uh, person cited in Trump's latest indictment as co-conspirator five. Oh, yes, that's right. Well, so, uh, you know, whether they're going to lie to you or not, we will always uh, try, at least, to tell you the truth, at least the best as we can figure it out. And to that end. Well, I, I, I know we'll have much more on all of Trump's many crimes in the days ahead, and even if time allows, maybe this hour. But I want to hit a few corrections here because we try to put them up front when we can, as much as possible when they are necessary. And I had a, a couple that I wanted to hit from our show on Tuesday when Trump's newest indictment had broken literally minutes before airtime. and so We, we were trying
2: were to cover it on the fly. <laughs> covering
1: it literally on the fly. So yeah. naturally, a few mistakes crept in that I want to I want want to note here and correct for the record so the person who is cited in trump's latest indictment as co-conspirator number five is described but not named in the indictment as quote an attorney who assisted in devising and attempting to implement a plan to submit fraudulent slates of presidential electors to obstruct the certification proceeding again has nothing to do with free speech so I couldn't figure out uh, during that show when we were uh, reading through the indictment live on air couldn't figure out who that uh, co-conspirator number 5 actually was and it was you know we well we now know that co-conspirator 5 appears to be Trump attorney Ken Cheesbro
2: Chesbro Chesbro
1: or Chesbro. Something like Your that. I like
2: Cheesebro, personally. Yeah, I do,
1: too. Uh, anyway, I, I think I said I didn't know who it was at the time. I had been able to identify co-conspirators one through four, and I was correct. But can Chesbro or Cheesebro, I could not identify. We now know that the, he is co-conspirator number five. And co-conspirator number six, and here was my actual error, uh, is described as a political consultant who helped implement. The plan to submit fraudulent slates of presidential electors to obstruct the certification proceedings. And while we still do not know who that is for certain, I had speculated that it might be Trump's 2020 campaign director of Election Day operations, whose name I could not think of on Tuesday. And I misnamed him as something like John Malone, with apologies to all of the non-conspirators named John Malone out there. (laughs) In fact, the director of Trump's election day operations was a guy named Mike Roman. So, my apology for that error. Uh, whether he is co conspirator number six is still unknown. However, on our show yesterday, one of our guests, Heather Digby Parton, said that she had seen that Marcy Wheeler of EmptyWheel.net, who knows everything, by the way, speculated co conspirator number six might be Trump attorney and political consultant Boris Efstein. But reading a piece from Marcy today, I see that she suggests co-conspirator number six might be either Boris Epstein or, are you ready, Mike Roman. Okay. So either way, it is definitely not John Malone. Who is a name that I apparently made up.
2: <laughs> Sorry, John Malone. Because it
1: kind of, for some reason, sounds like Mike Roman in my in my brain or something. So, again, my apologies to all the John Romans who are not. John
2: Malone's. What did I say? John oh, Romans. See, I,
1: <laughs> anyway, see why we put these corrections up front? Because we need plenty of time apparently. to fix the corrections that we make while making the corrections. Uh, Anyway, I also, I think, misnamed the U.S. District Judge who's overseeing that case, uh, Judge Tanya Chutkin. I called her Valerie Chutkin when uh, trying to cover it on the fly on Tuesday. She is, in fact, uh, the judge uh, who has previously written famously in deciding against Trump in a 2021 case. Uh, She wrote, quote, presidents are not kings and plaintiff is not president. Also, that is not good, probably, for Donald Trump. It was not her, but a magistrate judge who oversaw the arraignment uh, on these new charges of Trump at the D.C. federal courthouse on Thursday. And another correction, because, well, as I said, when it arraigns, it pours. Also, when it rains, it pours, which reminds me, we'll have a Green News report with Desi Doyen later this hour. True if we can get to it, this mistake I made on Monday. So it's been driving me crazy ever since. I've been, I, I, you know, been waylaid by uh, breaking news since then, so I haven't been able to issue my dumb correction. But on Monday's show, I had said to a caller nonetheless... That the August 23rd GOP presidential debate coming up in just a couple weeks, uh, the first one for the 2024 season, I had said that was going to be in Minneapolis where the caller was from. Well, that was wrong. It won't be in Minneapolis. It will be in Milwaukee. I misspoke. My apologies. (laughs) The good folks of Minneapolis can now rest easy. They deserve better. So uh, Milwaukee, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, not Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I realize it's not the first time that I have confused those two cities. They're sort of both uh, multi-syllabic cities that start with M. They both uh, are in competitive states in presidential elections, even if Wisconsin is far more so with Donald Trump having reportedly won in Wisconsin in 2016 by about 20,000 votes out of about 3 million cast, and then Joe Biden winning Wisconsin in 2020 by about the same 20,000 votes. In other words, it's a battleground state, Wisconsin, and so it is no mistake that the RNC is staging their first big GOP presidential debate for the 24th season in the virtual must win presidential bellwether of Wisconsin. Uh, As it turns out, Tuesday in Wisconsin was the first day that liberals finally took over majority control of the Wisconsin state Supreme Court after winning a Democratic election to seat another liberal Uh, Earlier in the year, Milwaukee Judge Janet Protosiewicz, she is uh, on the state's high court now after being elected back in early April. So that, and it comes for the first time in at least a decade, I think it was 15 or 16 years, something like that. And all of that comes at a time which Daniel Nishanian, the progressive election journalist and editor-in-chief of Boltz Magazine, who's known as Taniel on Twitter. He described on uh, uh, Monday what's going on in Wisconsin as a time of quite exceptional chaos in election administration in the battleground state. Nishani cited a story from just last week at Bolts by Cameron Joseph, who reports the job of Wisconsin's top election official is in limbo following a conspiracy-fueled attempt by Republicans to remove, to remove her from office, leaving an unstable situation that could hurt the state's readiness for the 2024 elections, no matter the outcome. As the administrator of the Wisconsin Election Commission, Megan Wolfe, is the nonpartisan manager of the office that advises and aids Wisconsin's 72 county clerks and nearly 2,000 local election officials. She is widely respected by local clerks and election experts from both parties, but she has become a target, you'll be shocked to learn, for right-wing conspiracy theorists touting false claims that the 2020 election was stolen from the former president, and Republican lawmakers who want to appease their base have now turned her into a scapegoat for that. After state Senate Republicans made clear earlier this summer that they were unlikely to confirm her for another four year term, the commission's Democrats moved to block a procedural step to allow that vote to happen at all. Now, to keep Wolf in her office, past her 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 terms expiration on July 1, Democrats are banking on the courts to uphold the precedent of a controversial ruling that they had decried and Republicans had cheered just one year ago. So, Uh, Joseph goes on to write this unprecedented and unpredictable situation is the result of Republicans years long attacks on the state's election governance and could undermine Wisconsin's ability to run a smooth election in 2024 when it could well be the state to determine the next president. Wolf's employment status will likely be decided at the State Supreme Court, which, as noted, has now officially flipped to a liberal majority, adding another layer of strange uncertainty, ensuring that the process is probably going to drag on for many months before there's any resolution here. The barrage of attacks, partisan attacks, on Wolf and her office have already depleted staff morale and could lead to a staff exodus that saps the office of crucial institutional knowledge ahead of what will be a supercharged presidential election in a critical state bolts reports that the wisconsin election commission's head of information technology recently announced herself that she was leaving and many are worried that others may soon depart if she is forced out megan wolf The committee will the commission will have to scramble to find an inadequate replacement for a highly specialized, incredibly difficult and closely scrutinized job that few competent administrators would even want, given the partisan fury that it draws. But if the courts rule that Wolf can stay in her job through the next election, even though her term has expired, it gives Republicans an easy foil If they narrowly lose the state's election next year. Either way, we are screwed, warned Jay Heck, the executive director of the good government group Common Cause Wisconsin. It's a it's a detailed story, which I will link to tonight uh, when I post today's show. But in short, Republicans have been using their gerrymandered supermajorities in the state legislature to repeatedly change the rules and oust nonpartisan officials that they decided uh, for whatever reason were biased against them. Wolf, in fact, was actually the Republican's choice for this job for for administrator. The GOP run Senate unanimously confirmed her to a full. 4 year term four years ago. But since and, and since then, she's gotten all kinds of accolades from local election clerks uh, of all parties across the political spectrum. But after Republicans lost the state in the presidential election in 2020, they decided to blame Wolf for cheating or for not cheating enough for Republicans or something. In any event, they turned on her and Republicans wanted her gone by the end of her uh, her term in June. So according to state law, the commission, the Wisconsin Election Commission, which after a yet another Republican makeover is now balanced with three Republicans and three Democratic appointees, the commission, they get to select an administrator who really does the day-to-day work of, running the office and, in fact, helping to run elections across the entire state. But the gerrymandered GOP-controlled state Senate must then confirm whoever it is that the commission chooses. So Wolf responded to all of this in an open letter to the election clerks across the state back in mid-June, making the case for why she should be chosen to get another term. It's clear, she wrote, that enough legislators have fallen prey to false information about my work and the work of this agency that my role here is at risk. There is no substitute, she wrote, for my decade plus of experience in helping run Wisconsin elections at the state level. It is a fact that I, if I am not selected for this role, Wisconsin would have a less experienced administrator at the helm. So to help Wolf stay in office, the three Democrats on the commission turned a recent Supreme Court precedent that they had strongly disagreed with. Well, they turned it to their advantage, or at least tried to. Last summer, the Supreme Court, which had a right wing conservative majority at the time, ruled in a very close decision, four to three, that a Republican appointee who had refused to leave office when his term had ended, that he could stay on the job indefinitely. It was a ridiculous decision made by a ridiculous right-wing Supreme Court in the state of Wisconsin, just one of the reasons why it's good that the uh, majority has now been overturned and is now run by not insane people. This extraordinary ruling at the time had validated Republican efforts to stymie uh, a um, To stymie the Democratic governor in the state, Tony Evers, to prevent him from installing his own new appointees at the head of state agencies. So, of course, Democrats oppose this. They were furious at the time with the uh, corrupt state Supreme Court and the gerrymandered state legislature. But this summer they decided to test that precedent to let Wolf stay in office by virtue of her prior term rather than ask the GOP Senate to approve a new term for her. So she just gets to stay there as far as they're concerned, as far as the Republican-led Supreme Court in the state had said just a year ago. As you might imagine, Republicans are furious
2: <laughs> how dare you use the same tricks that i just used
1: exactly they slam the democratic commissioners for circumventing the normal process for using the it's amazing it's amazing and you know it would be just a matter of uh, ugly state politics were this not wisconsin which could decide the presidential election next year it's now unclear what happens next If she is removed, it may be impossible to find anyone for that job that, you know, that can be agreed upon at this late uh, date before the critical 24 election in the in the Badger State. But wherever it goes, it is likely to end up before the now liberal majority on the state Supreme Court, where at least three of them uh, just a year ago had voted against Allowing previous state agency officials to stay on the job after their term, but they could now change their position on that now that the shoe is on the other foot so that's interesting
2: fun for Wisconsin
1: and we will be and for the nation sadly anyway uh, that is why we will be keeping our eyes on. That story in the days ahead. Some other uh, 2020 election-related accountability today, other than Donald Trump's arraignment in D.C. federal court, in a in a story that we suggested last week was likely to be coming this week, and indeed it has, though it also happened on the same day that Trump was indicted again, so it got a little bit buried. We'll unbury it uh, after a quick break here. This is accountability for tampering with voting systems out of the great and, yes, also battleground state of Michigan. That's next on the Bradcast, along with more news from uh, maybe several other states, as time allows, and Desi Doyne in the Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is supporting you and the things that you care about. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. Right now, as much as ever. If you choose to support us, you can do it really easily, safely, and quickly via Bradblog.com slash donate. From Desi Doyen and myself, Thank you.
0: How oh, sweet it is to be loved
1: by you. Oh, yes, baby. A little Motown there. Yeah. How sweet it is to be loved
0: by you.
1: Well done, Desi Doyen. Welcome back to the broadcast, Brad Friedman from BradBlog.com in Michigan this week. The accountability continues. Quite a week for accountability. The uh, state's failed 2022 Republican attorney general candidate and another supporter of former President Donald Trump were criminally charged uh, this week in connection with accessing and tampering with voting machines after the 2020 election. Matt DiPerno, a Looney Tunes 2020 election denier and a Republican lawyer who was endorsed by Trump, in his unsuccessful run for uh, Michigan Attorney General last year, was charged with four criminal state counts, including undue possession of a voting machine and conspiracy. That according to the uh, Oakland County, Michigan court records. Also, Dare Rendon, a former Republican state rep, She was also charged with conspiracy to commit undue possession of a voting machine and false pretenses. Both were arraigned this week. A special prosecutor, D.J. Hilson, has been reviewing the investigation and considering charges since September when the probe was referred to him by state AG Dana Nessel, a Democrat. She uh, passed it on. Uh, passed on this uh, this probe to uh, to the special prosecutor after DiPerno was nominated by the state GOP to be her opponent in last year's midterm election. So they knew there was a criminal investigation of this guy. So they nominated the Republicans, nominated him to be the state's top uh, law enforcement official. Only Naturally. the best people. Yes. Uh, Those uh, charge. And so instead of running against her opponent, Dana Nessel did the right thing. She called for a special prosecutor to be named here, and that's how D.J. Hilson got into the thing. That's uh, not unlike what happened at the federal level when Merrick Garland called on Jack Smith to be the special prosecutor after Donald Trump had declared that he would be a candidate in the 2024 election. Those charged in Michigan are just the latest facing legal consequences for alleged crimes committed after embracing Trump's lie that the 2020 election was stolen from him. GOP officials in Colorado have also been charged with felony crimes for unlawfully breaching voting systems after the 2020 election. And we may see similar charges for GOP officials in Georgia very soon, related to the Coffee County voting systems breach, which we originally broke on this program last year from, uh, we may see charges from Fulton County's District Attorney Fonnie Willis on that. In Michigan, DePerno was named as a, quote, prime instigator in this case, in which five voting tabulators were taken from three um, different Michigan counties taken back to a hotel room. According to documents released last year by the Attorney General Nessel's office, investigators found that the tabulators were then broken into and, quote, tests were performed on the equipment. DePerno, who had hoped to be the state the state's top law enforcement officer when he unsuccessfully ran against Nessel last November, uh, he was there. He was present for these unlawful so-called tests, along with about four others, about five others who were actually also present at the Coffee County, Georgia, voting software breaches, including, for example, the guy who uh, used to run the now defunct Cyber Ninjas. Nine individuals, including DePerno and uh, Rendon, Dare Rendon, the former state rep, and a GOP attorney who worked on the breaches in both Michigan and in Georgia, a woman by the name of Stephanie Lambert, uh, were all named by Dana Nessel's office as having been involved in this scheme. Lambert said last week, as we reported, that her attorney had said that she had been indicted as well, though apparently that is not yet uh, confirmed with public documents. So if she's been indicted, she may know about it, but that's not what the public documents yet say. When asked whether the broader investigation continues, however, the special prosecutor, D.J. Hilson, said, quote, still more to come unrelated to the individuals currently charged. The felony of taking a voting system without permission in advance, permission from either the secretary of state or a court order in Michigan is a felony and it is punishable by up to five years in prison in the state. And that is uh, among the things, among the problems for the man who is not the uh, attorney general now, uh, thankfully, in the great state of Michigan, Matt DiPerno.
2: It's fascinating that the Republican Party in Michigan wanted to nominate someone to be the top law enforcement official in the state who was. Under... Oh, it's,
1: it's now a requirement, apparently. Apparently. <laughs> apparently, if you want to be nominated for a Republican. Uh, law
2: enforcement uh, law, position. Uh,
1: law enforcement or any position, apparently. Uh, it's good to have crimes on your resume.
2: That's your experience, I guess.
1: Those charges come the week after the 16 fake electors in Michigan who are allegedly part of Trump's plot to steal the 2020 election after they were indicted on eight counts each for their role in that conspiracy. And speaking of Trump and his conspiracy to steal the 2020 election and fake electors. And breached computer voting systems. We have this. As you will recall, Fonnie Willis, remember her, the Fulton County, Georgia district attorney, uh, she had told the Fulton County court some months back to lock down the court, essentially lock down the courthouse where she would likely be seeking indictments from a grand jury and announcing them publicly at any time from July 31 through the beginning of September, according to her letter to the court at the time. Well, Willis said in an interview over the past weekend with local affiliate WXIA That she will announce charging decisions in her investigation, her broad conspiracy investigation of Donald Trump into his efforts uh, and those of his allies to steal the Georgia state 2020 presidential election by uh, September 1.
2: Well, I mean, I've made a commitment to the American people, but most importantly, the citizens of Fulton County, that um, we were going to be making some big uh, decisions regarding the election investigation and that I would do that before September the 1st of 2023. And I'm going to hold true that commitment. The work is accomplished. We've been working for for two and a half years. and We're ready to go.
1: We're ready to go. She says, actually, the decision will happen before uh, the 1st of September. So at some point in August. Which is about all we know. The Fulton County Sheriff's Department has already put up barricades around the courthouse last week in expectation of the announcement. Willis acknowledged the ramped up security measures in her interview and praised the Fulton County Sheriff for taking those precautions. Quote, I think that the sheriff is doing something smart and making sure that the courthouse stays safe Willis said, I'm not willing to put any of the employees or the constituents that come to the courthouse in harm's way. She added that people may not be happy with her upcoming announcements and sometimes, quote, when people are unhappy, they act in a way that could create harm. Meanwhile, uh, D.A. Willis is also making clear that she has no intention of backing down from whatever her current plans now are. No matter what comes at her, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution this week, Willis warned a group of county leaders over the weekend to, quote, stay alert and, quote, make decisions that keep your staff safe. In the uh, same group email to Fulton County commissioners obtained by the AJC, Willis forwarded an obscene message that she had recently received as just one example of the threats that her office has received since opening her investigation into uh, election interference by Trump and friends in Georgia. The message called Willis a corrupt, quote, corrupt N-word. Mm. It threatened her and described her as a Jim Crow Democrat whore, which is Kind of an odd turn of phrase, frankly. Willis explained to the group, uh, quote, I am sending to you this note in case you are unclear on what I and my staff have come accustomed to over the last two and a half years. She said, I guess I am sending this as a reminder that you should stay alert over the month of August and stay safe. Now, all of this is interesting because, you know, uh, when she uh, when she wrote that over the weekend, we had already had two or I guess by then two and a half indictments, including last week's uh, late in the week, the new superseding indictment down in Florida with the information from that uh, mar Mar-Lago employees had uh, talked about, quote, the boss wanting them to, quote, delete the server that had the surveillance footage on it of them moving boxes of classified documents around after those documents had been subpoenaed by the Department of Justice, they were actually try. they actually said, and this is quoted in the uh, superseding indictment that was file, filed last week, they, uh, they say the boss wants you to delete the server. Anyway, so that's what makes it, by the weekend, two and a half indictments. Now I guess it's three and a half indictments. But with those uh, indictments, and each time that Trump, you know, would encourage his supporters essentially to riot on his behalf in response to the indictments, pretty much no one has showed up at these courthouses to even protest at all. The same was true on Thursday in D.C. in the uh, official third indictment of Donald Trump. There was no uprising. There was, in fact, no noteworthy show of outrage from Trump supporters at all. So I thought, you know, with Willis's warning a few months ago that the Fulton County Courthouse would should be completely locked down over the entire month of August when any indictments might be due. And for all workers at the court who uh, who can, they should work from home during that period. The magistrate court of uh, of Fulton has encouraged individuals who have hearings in the county courthouse in the coming weeks to avoid going downtown, instead connect virtually instead. So I thought all of that maybe was a bit of an overreaction to whatever was coming. Nonetheless, as of last weekend anyway, Willis did not appear to have backed off of that very, very cautious stance, which... Makes me wonder just how big and how broad-reaching are her indictments likely to be at this point. Perhaps she's acting out of an abundance of caution on her part, which would be fine, but it does make me wonder, boy, what is she planning here?
2: Or possibly what kinds of threats and threat intelligence is she seeing?
1: Exactly. In any event, all of this could be much broader than we have assumed until now. And frankly, I always assumed it could be very broad. So we shall see. It could be broader than even I had uh, expected or maybe hoped. But anyway, well noted. Willis ended her note over the weekend to uh, county officials by writing, quote, I took an oath. No other than the citizens of Fulton County put me in this seat, she said. I have every intention of doing my job. Please make decisions that keep your office safe. Fulton County Solicitor uh, Keith Gamage responded to Willis and the entire group to say, quote, the awful communication that you received is meant to threaten, harass and intimidate not just you, but all of us. The sender and his or her ilk has and will continue to fail. So it seems at least the Fulton County Commission has her back in any event down there in Georgia's largest county, uh, making up a large part of Atlanta. So uh, we don't know when it's coming. It could be uh, the end of August. It could be tomorrow. Don't know. Stay tuned. And with everything else going on over the past uh, week, the past month or so in these United States and across this globe... uh The climate will have none of it. The climate does its own thing. The climate climate doesn't
2: care about your politics.
1: What the climate does, as discussed in our latest Green News report.
2: Climate change shifted the heat. Man-made climate change made record-hot July three times more likely, new study finds.
1: That can lead to over two billion hours of labor
2: lost per year just in the United States. Extreme heat is also extremely costly for business, plus customers are Facing another rate increase. It's the third this year. America's first new nuclear reactor in years finally starts operations in Georgia with higher costs for ratepayers.
1: <laughs> All of those stories and more straight ahead. From BradBlog.com. I'm Brad Friedman.
2: And I'm Desi Doyen.
1: Stand by for six minutes of Independent Green News, politics, analysis, and snarky comment.
0: A new reactor, had a new nuclear power plant in Georgia is now producing energy that could soon be used. Use to power your home is an
1: exciting step not the words that i would use to describe it this is your green news report okay desi Doyen, as delighted as i am about a new nuclear reactor in georgia <laughs> i guess we have to start with the nuclear reactor in the sky that is causing all kinds of problems across this earth.
2: Sure, we can put it that way. About 80% of humanity experienced unusually hot temperatures during July. That was the hottest month in recorded history. And human-caused climate change was responsible for most of it. That's according to a new study by nonprofit data firm Climate Central. The researchers say more than 6.5 billion people experienced climate change intensified extreme heat in july 2023 and man-made global warming made those extreme temperatures at least three times more likely
1: and they are still experiencing that heat
2: right now indeed even though it is winter in the southern hemisphere parts of chile hit a record 102 degrees this week 102 degrees fahrenheit in winter yes Beijing became the newest area, deluged by record-breaking rainfall. The remnants of super typhoon Doksuri, one of the most intense storms ever to hit China, dumped nearly two and a half feet of rain over five days in the Beijing region, an all-time high in at least 140 years of record-keeping. That triggered catastrophic flooding, crippling the city, killing at least 21 people with dozens still missing. Climate scientists say global warming is turbocharging extreme rains around the world because a warmer atmosphere holds more moisture. Extreme weather is extremely expensive. According to a new assessment by global reinsurance giant Munich Re, in just the first half of 2023, globally, disasters of all kinds caused more than $110 billion in economic losses. But the U.S. alone makes up more than a third of those disaster losses this year so far. A different study finds that the prolonged extreme heat has hit small business owners exceptionally hard. According to a new report by the small business payroll company Homebase, the heat forced many small businesses to close early in July due to fewer customers and to protect employees. That reduced paid working hours for employees. The company warned that extended dangerous temperatures may reshape consumer behavior.
1: Wow, that would be something that a political party that uh, cares about small businesses would want to take action and do something about, right?
2: We can now add oil refineries to the list of fossil fuel infrastructure struggling amid record-shattering heat. Refineries in Texas and Louisiana have been forced to cut back operations as a safety measure because they're not designed to operate above 95 degrees. That has helped spike gas prices around the world. They've reached their highest levels this year so far in the United States.
1: So fossil fuels increase the heat. That shuts down the refineries, which raises the profits for the fossil fuel companies.
2: Pretty neat, huh? Sweet deal. In other news, the Biden administration held an oil lease auction, as required by law, this time in Nevada, but nobody came. Zero oil companies bid in the Bureau of Land Management's lease sale. The bust, underscored, calls from conservationists to focus on abundant renewable energy in the state and phase out oil production. Finally... Electric utility Georgia Power began commercial operation at one of two large new nuclear reactors at the Vogel plant this week after years of delays, design and construction missteps, and massive cost overruns. The first newly built US reactor to come online in decades, it was supposed to be up and running in 2016. But the cost of the reactors has more than doubled to more than thirty billion dollars. While the new reactor will generate zero emissions electricity for an estimated half million homes and businesses, Georgia Power has asked for the third rate increase in a year on customers to pay for the cost overruns of Plant Vogel.
1: So, more dangerous and more expensive. Yeah. The plan is sound. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks, Mastodons, and website formerly known as Twitter... At Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green
0: News Report. Are you ready for that great atomic power? Will you rise and meet your savior in the air? Will you shout or will you cry when that fire is small high? Are you ready for that great atomic power?
1: Well, let's just hope uh, that Fonnie Willis' case against Donald Trump Do blows up to, to some extent <laughs> but uh, not before. The <laughs> nuclear plant in any event thank you very much Des Doy. thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us it is as always greatly appreciated and an honor if you missed any portion of today's program or any other that we have ever done since the beginning of time you can download them all for free at bradblog.com where there is no paywall because some of you are generous enough not enough of you but some (laughs) of you well they're generous enough but not enough of them are generous anyway uh, who stopped by bradblog.com Slash donate Thanks to those of you who do And thanks to those of you who don't as well But we're who just, spread bo- the word Who Spread the word, spread the good word That there we
2: exist know. and we're here
1: We're here Anyway, alright, that's it, we gotta get out uh, Did I thank Desi Doyen? I did uh, You can drop me email if you like I am bradcast at bradblog.com And you will find me on the Facebook's Mastodons and site formerly known as Twitter at simply the Brad blog. See you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman.
0: Good luck, world. Are you ready for that great atomic power? Will you rise meet your savior in the air? Will you shout or will you cry when that firing's from on high? Are you ready for that
1: great atomic power?
0: Will you shout or will you cry when that firing's from on high? Are you ready for that great atomic power? I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1981. That was the day 13,000 workers in the Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization, or PATCO, went out on strike. Highly stressed workers had been driven to nervous exhaustion by long hours, problematic technology, and brutal management. They wanted better pay and working conditions and a 32-hour work week. PATCO workers had proven that militancy bred victories throughout the 1970s. But public sector employers went on the offensive as the decade drew to a close. By the time Ronald Reagan was elected to office, automation, deregulation, and inflation had taken its toll. As Joseph McCartan details in his book, Collision Course, controllers found new technology unreliable. They experienced, on average, a computer outage a day in critical moments of takeoffs and landings. As well, the Airline Deregulation Act and the Civil Service Reform Act became law in October 1978, serving to restrict union rights and worsen working conditions. By the late 1970s, inflation had tripled. Federal workers, unlike those in the private sector, lacked any COLA protections. Emboldened by their skill level, solidarity, and previous victories, the controllers walked. Invoking Taft-Hartley, President Reagan issued a 48-hour back-to-work ultimatum. In a historic move, he fired the strikers, jailed their leaders, and forced costly injunctions that spelled doom for the union and the labor movement. Many labor activists had hoped the teamsters and machinists would walk out in support. Instead, the strike was a pivotal moment for labor. It ushered in an era of unprecedented attacks not seen since the 1930s. As Robert Weir notes, Patco's defeat touched off a new wave of downsizing, decertification, and concession strikes. The labor movement continues to suffer its impact today.